Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we come to your living word, that the Holy Spirit might use it to impact our hearts, each heart that is here, in the same way that you have impacted those who we have seen being baptized. Oh Lord, speak now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of a wealthy American farmer from Texas who came over for a holiday in Scotland. He met an old Highland sheep farmer and asked him, tell me, how big is your ranch? Well, said the old farmer, I own about 30 acres of land. The Texan laughed and said, you call that a ranch? Why, back home, I can get up in the morning, I can jump into my car, and I can drive, and I can drive all morning, and I would still be on my own land. I can drive all the way through the afternoon, and I can still be on my own land, and I can drive right the way through the evening, and do you know what? I will still be on my own land. So what do you think of that? The old Scottish farmer scratched his head and said, yes, I had a car like that once, (laughs) but I sold it. (laughs) Don't you get really annoyed with people who boast and brag about themselves? Often people boast in order to make themselves look great and to make other people feel small and insignificant by comparison. And here in this parable that we heard read, Jesus tells of a particular type of boasting that God really dislikes, and that is of our own self-righteousness and self-importance. And clearly amongst the crowd of people that surrounded Jesus as he spoke that day were some who felt that they were more morally superior to everybody else. Let's read again the parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Tell me, what do you think is the most important question in the whole world? Well, for some of you who are students and studying, it's exam time right now, so the most important question to you is this, will I pass? For those who are followers of Leicester or Leeds football clubs, the most important question In the world for you this afternoon is this, will my team still be in the premiership by five o'clock tonight? But do you know what the most important question is according to the Bible? It's this, how can I be put right with God? How can I stand before God on the day of judgment and be found not guilty 
when I stand before him? That is the most important question in the world that everyone needs answering because our eternal destiny depends on it. And in this parable, Jesus tells us of two people who had totally different answers to that very question. One of them, the Pharisee, the other, the tax collector. And the gulf between the two could not have been greater. You see, the Pharisee was a very religious person who felt he was law-abiding and upright, both morally and spiritually. He thought that if anyone is deserving of heaven and would be in God's good books, oh, it was surely going to be him. The other, a tax collector. They were despised people, for they were Jews who collected taxes on behalf of the occupying Roman army. And as a result, their fellow countrymen would socially exclude them from life in their community. Such was their hatred of them. And so these two people enter the temple in Jerusalem at the same time. For the temple was open throughout the whole day for anybody to come in and pray. They were looking at the sacrifice that had been made for sin, that was daily made for sin. But their prayers were looking totally different. We are told the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Now, this Pharisee clearly wanted to distance himself from anyone else in the temple. He felt he was too good to be surrounded by anybody else. He thought he was far too superior in holiness to stand alongside others. But somehow he had caught sight at the corner of his eye, of the tax collector. And so he began to pray his very audible prayer. His prayer was all about himself, his achievements, his own self-righteous acts. And he looked down on this dear man. His language is one of self-congratulation. He's relying on his achievements, his good works, his efforts. In effect, he is his own savior. In fact, God is only mentioned as if he were a spectator. Perhaps he was expecting God to applaud him at the end of his speech. So if I can put it this way, this Pharisee thought that he was living in the penthouse of a spiritual skyscraper. And the tax collector was living in the basement. I don't know if that resonates with you. But I think we all know and maybe even have been those kind of people that thought, look, if, if, if this is the image that God has, that we're on this spiritual kind of a block of flats, where would you place yourself? Which floor would you place yourself on? I know that you know who's above you. You're thinking, well, you know, there's probably people like the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, uh, Cliff Richard, uh, uh, John Russell, the senior minister at Cornerstone. And we certainly know all the people that are below us, don't we? You know, those that you see on Crime Watch UK or cruel dictators that we read about in the news. 
But we might place ourselves somewhere kind of in the middle. And if God does have a cutoff point as to who is condemned and who is saved, we kind of put ourselves on that top tier of those who are deserving of heaven. We feel pretty confident that we will be in that top section, don't we? Well, this Pharisee was too busy looking at his own spiritual achievements. He was like some kind of a religious bodybuilder, admiring himself in the mirror, saying, who's a pretty boy then? And do you know what? He walked out of that temple and declared himself as being a perfect specimen of righteousness. He didn't realize that he too, just like that tax collector, was impure and just as in need of God's mercy. Perhaps I can illustrate it by the following story. The story is told of a minister who was traveling by train to Wales on a wet and a windy November day in order to preach somewhere. And as he was drawing near to his destination, he noticed a beautiful, brilliant white farm building which stood out in sharp contrast to the dark, muddy ground in which it lay. He observed how white and how clean it looked on that dark and wet day. But a few days later, after he'd finished preaching, the minister returned home on the train. And by this time, there had actually been a fresh covering of snow that had fallen on the ground. And he looked out for the brilliantly white building that he'd spotted the few days before. But what a contrast he noticed. For now, instead of it gleaming, all he could see was just how dirty and muddy it looked in comparison to the pure brightness of the fresh fallen snow. Friends, that is all of us before a holy God. The Bible says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. You see, you do not know what holiness is until you compare yourself with God. You don't know what purity and goodness looks like until you compare yourself alongside God. We are tarnished people. We have failed to live our lives as God intended it. We have failed to love him as we ought. We are fallen creatures in need to admit of our failure and to seek God's forgiveness. And that's exactly what this tax collector does. Look down at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, the tax collector knew that before a holy God, he was unholy by comparison. And he felt so unworthy even to enter the temple area or even to look up. His head was downcast. 
He stood far away from the holy place in the temple, somewhere lurking back there in the shadows. He didn't dare lift his eyes in prayer. He simply poured out a confession of his sinfulness and appealed to God's mercy. He felt so ashamed of what he had done, of what he had been, of what he had failed to be. And he beat his breast as an outward expression of his remorse of how he had lived. He stood there like a piece of moral wreckage in a scrapyard of humanity, as an outcast of society, and yet longing to come to God. Friends, perhaps you feel like you're observing at a distance here this morning. You feel that if people knew what you were like, what you have even been up to this weekend, you'd feel so ashamed, so dirty. You're thinking to yourself, but God wouldn't surely want somebody like me if he knew what I was like. I've done too much wrong in my life for him who is holy to be interested in me. Well, let me tell you this. Heaven is populated with people who didn't deserve to be there. Heaven is populated with people who didn't deserve to be there. And I will be one of them. But he cried out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now notice how that tax collector is only conscious of his own failure, not anyone else's. It is his sin that matters. And that is how you know that God is dealing with you. When you're conscious and aware of your sin, of your failures, and not anybody else's. The tax collector literally says, be merciful to me, the sinner. For as far as he was concerned, he felt like the worst person in the world. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, who was against the, the Christians, who got converted on the Damascus Road, he used to approve of the killing of Christians before he became one. But the Apostle Paul said this about himself. He said, I am the worst of sinners. Friends, when I first saw Paul's words, I wanted to score it out and say, no, I am the worst of sinners because that's how I felt. But it's no bad thing to feel as though we are the worst when we stand before a holy God because that is the doorway to begin the journey back to him, to admit we have failed. And in this simple prayer, it's the kind of prayer that gets God's attention in an instant. When we are serious about turning from our failures and our rebellion against God and desire with all of our hearts to be put right with him. Oh, friends, God loves a, a prayer like that. And he will never turn anyone away who prays a prayer like that. Jesus himself had said, I've come to seek and to save that which has been lost. 
And so Jesus said it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who left the temple and was declared justified before God. That tax collector left the temple as a new man with his shoulders back, his chin up, his eyes lifted to a new horizon, a new possibility of a new life. He probably changed his career because there will be changes in that man's life. His own family would not even be able to recognize him. And as he weeps over his past life, Jesus smiles upon him. As he beats his breast, the doors of heaven were open to him. Because God throws a party to every sinner who returns to him. Because Jesus said there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 self-righteous people who think they don't need to repent. You know, the most recorded song in history isn't one by, isn't one by Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way, or indeed the Beatles, Yesterday, which has been recorded 2,000 times on different albums. But rather, the most recorded song in all of history was written in 1772 by John Newton. The words are familiar. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He penned those words because he was a former slave trader who turned from living his life and morals without God and recognized his need of forgiveness from Jesus. His life was transformed by doing so, and he became a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Towards the end of his life, he said this, Although my memory is fading, I can still remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner. And that Christ is a great Savior. Oh, friends, tell me, where are you in that have you come here today thinking, I'd love to have this faith. I'd love to be able to sing the songs that these people have been singing. To know something of that amazing grace. Oh, I'd give anything to turn the clock back on my life, the wasted years. I wonder if there is mercy for me. I wonder if there is hope for me. Friends, if you are able to say and mean this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. A step will take you over this step. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You see, as that man stood in that temple and had seen the blood of an innocent lamb that was designated 
to pay for the sins of God's people back in the Old Testament, someone much greater would come. The one telling the story, Jesus. He would be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And as he hung on that cross, he was paying for my sin, for the sins of these precious people who we have seen baptized and many hundreds who come to this church. It is not by good works that we are saved. It is by coming to Jesus, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, will, will live even though he dies. I am the, 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 the bread of life. I am the gate for the sheep. He is the way to be reconciled with God. But we have to step through him. We have to trust in him. I said at the beginning, what is the most important question the most important question in this world is how can I be put right with God? How can I stand before God on that day of judgment and be declared not guilty? The answer is to be found in Christ alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, says the hymn writer, simply to the cross I cling. Rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the punishment for the sins and the wrong things that I had done, that you had done. God's anger against my sin was poured out on Christ instead of me. So that by me coming to him in repentance and faith as these people have, we got to have our sins forgiven be brought into a right standing in relationship with God as our heavenly Father and know an eternity beyond this grave for once I take my final breath, I will yet live and see my Savior. That is why Jesus is the sufficient Savior. You will not find this in any other world religion. A God who does it all for you, who pays the price for you who does what you could not do for yourself, for you. He alone is the judge, and therefore he alone is the one who can declare us not guilty. And he does so to all who will come to him for forgiveness. But there is one final question I want to ask in closing. What is keeping you here from responding to that free gift of salvation in Christ? What is it that is stopping you from joining these people? Is it your ambitions, your career, your intellectual uh, uh, affirmation of so many other things that this world has to offer? Is it someone else in your life that prevents you from surrendering to Christ. Lord, there may be all manner of things, but I ask you this morning, are you willing to lay down your arms, lay aside these questions, these doubts, these battles you've had against God, resisting him? Oh, friends, stop resisting his rightful rule to your life. 
Repent of your sins. Accept Christ as your Lord. That is the way to live life, both here on this planet and the moment you take your final breath. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. Let's pray. Is there someone here this morning and you know that this word was for you, that God knew you would be here, that wherever you're sitting, God knew you. He knows your past, but he wants to give you a a different future. then perhaps you might want to echo words that I prayed when I surrendered to Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know that I've failed to live for you. And I've sinned in thought, in word, and in deed. I know I cannot save myself and look to your Son for mercy. I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me, taking the punishment my sins deserved. And I thank you that you rose from the dead and you're alive forevermore. I want to turn from living my way to living your way to having you at the center of my life. Come into my life by the power of your Holy Spirit and help me from this day on to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen.